A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section we're reading. We are in our second episode on Golden Sun, so you have an entire book and like 12 chapters to go. Get to it. Hey there. This is PJ. And I'm Cross. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. The shoe is on the other foot today. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> like everything else, PJ has been placed on the back foot at the last minute just to strike me down and disarm me of my host role. We'll see. No. <laughs> Uh, Today we're breaking down the 8th through 12th chapter of Golden Sun, the second book in the Red Rising series. But before we do that, we're going to talk about what we are drinking tonight. Cross, what have you got? Before this, I was feeling half asleep, so I went and bought a Red Bull, and I had the cherry concentrate left over from the finale episode. I made myself another low red, so I am having one of those. If you don't know or didn't listen, it is a little bit of lime, Red Bull, vodka, and cherry concentrate with ice. It's uh, very solid. No complaints. Very nice. Definitely went back to it a second time, so it's it's good enough. You know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't tried that yet, but it's been a long time since I've had Red Bull. I know. You too. But here I am. There you are. What are uh, What's your cocktail? I got a new cocktail book. The, uh, the Classic Cocktail Bible is what it's called. So I've got something called Planter's Punch. It is two ounces of rum, two ounces of ice water, an ounce of simple syrup, half an ounce of lime juice, three dashes of Angostura bitters, shaken, served over ice with some, uh, it says to serve with lime and orange wedges or orange wheels for uh, garnish. But all I had for citrus left after I took that or that uh, lime was uh, lemon. So I've got a lemon wheel, <laughs> but uh, it is delicious. Interesting. That sounds really it, it does say, like, this is from, like, the early 19th century, I guess. It says for a modern, more fruity cocktail to replace the ice water with pineapple juice, which would probably hmm. be good if I had any pineapple juice. Yeah, that involves going to the store, which is yeah. a whole process that, it yeah, is. I like to avoid. Kind of involved at this point. Yeah, very true. Mm-hmm. I know what you're drinking after this cocktail, um, but why don't you fill the listeners in? What have you got? Yeah, you think you know what you're doing, but I'm a sneaky goose, so I'm actually having the Queen Kong because <laughs> I flipped a coin and I was like, am I going to do what PJ says or am I not going to? The one I'm having tonight is Queen Kong, which is from Wilmington Brewing Company. They're a great brewing company. From here, I've ranted about them previously, but it is a West Coast style triple IPA. It is freaking amazing. I've already tried it just a little bit ago (laughs) not all of it fit in my glass and wow good so i've got fixed gear you definitely had that last episode was it last episode (laughs) yeah was it really yeah yep you want to know how i remember our producer talked about uh red ipas experiences with furious and otherwise to me recently and so i know that it was fixed gear because he sat through that episode (sighs) shit well (laughs) i've got fixed gear again (laughs) <laughs> i guess it makes sense it's uh it's tasty really <laughs> yeah it's literally an episode ago okay. that's fine all right that's fine refer us to your friends damn it give us to one of your friends we would love it we love you but we'd love it more if you made 
more people listen to us through force and coercion. We're trying to start a cult here and uh, we need we need bodies for that. Yeah, true. Bodies. Uh, with that, <laughs> let's move into the book. <laughs> so chapter eight, Scepter and Sword uh, is where we're going to start today. And I mean, to be expected, we left on a cliffhanger with a jackal. And this week we pick right where we left off on the last, where the last page ended talking about the sons of Ares and how the jackal feels about them as pawns to be expended in his war to claim power. Yeah. He jackal feels, I do you think he, I don't think he actually knows anything about the sons of Ares. I think he's trying to like flex a little bit as if he's more connected than he really is to Darrow. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think you're onto it. And I mean, he has no reason to believe that Darrow is actually like an agent of the Sons of Ares. So I, I, I think that's a big part of it. He definitely has a lot of muscle to flex, but I think he's even over-exaggerating that a little bit. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I do find it interesting that obviously he comments on them as kind of being expendable and predictable. And then later, like in direct contradiction, kind of says that it couldn't have been the Sons of Ares because of their actions. It's It's interesting to kind of compare those feelings and i do agree with you though that i think that the jackal is kind of overshooting his sphere of influence and what he thinks he has control over and not not even what he thinks he has like he's trying to seem more important and more connected than he than he is and he's already pretty fucking connected i don't know i i think that's going to come back to bite him a little bit but you know what who am i to speak you're the novice here who is yes. supposed to be making all the predictions and theories. So like, yes, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm always right. <laughs> yeah. Your, your assumption is always the correct one, except for when it's not, which is most of the time. Yes. How do you feel about Darrow making any kind of deal with the Jackal? Like Darrow's deal comes kind of with the caveat, obviously protecting Mustang. And is there a world in which you think the Jackal harms Mustang? I think it was kind of inevitable that, Darrow and the Jackal would start working together, especially as Darrow was ousted by that family. And they kind of found themselves with common goals. And I think that's, uh, it's natural. I I think it was very natural for them to come together and work together. Don't think there's much of a chance that the Jackal ever hurts Mustang. Um, I think he has a little bit of like a hurt, hurt ego, hurt pride, I guess, from her taking him in at the Institute, but I think his qualms are more with his father and more with, I don't know, the society at large. And they, they seem to not so much hate each other. I don't know. I find it interesting here too, to think about the way that they had talked about how after the Institute, how Jackal in the last book had said after the Institute, life is very different. And like, yeah, you, you like got friends here, but like friends don't actually matter in the real world. Your like position does. Mm-hmm. And this kind of relationship right now is building to kind of match sort of what the Jackal said on the inside of the Institute, you know, exactly. despite him murdering the fuck out of Pax. Yep, exactly. I think Darrow meant to say it to have like a ton of weight and it didn't because the yeah, Jackal didn't it, know him. It's like he wasn't important to me. He didn't like he wasn't anything other than an obstacle to me. It made yeah. Darrow kind of not to the same extent, but kind of seem like Cassius holding a grudge about like somebody who the like wronged party felt very very close to mm-hmm. but that the weight of that situation wasn't realized and it wasn't intentionally like done to hurt them in that way you know yeah definitely definitely so I, 
yeah, it while it wasn't done intentionally and hurt them, obviously the jackal was after killing Darrow. Right. So, I you mean, know, it's kind of yeah. like it's a it's a mixed bag, you know, like that's that's why Darrow has such a strong reaction to the idea of even going into anything with Darrow. It's cause like, dude, you literally tried to stab through someone to get me. Yep. Like to kill me. That's true. A giant thick man. <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason I didn't die is because he was so thick. We also get like a little note here that Lorne is retired as Rage Knight as well as the Morning Knight has retired. Um, do you have thoughts on that? I didn't realize he was that old. And I mean, maybe maybe it was maybe it was revealed in the last chunk how old he was now that I'm thinking about it. But I, I in the first description of him, I felt like he was like a just kind of, I don't know, 40 something kind of beefcake monk <laughs> dude. I don't know. That's how I imagined him, but not as like an old withered man. Not that he was withered, but I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I I was going to say, I don't, I wouldn't call him strictly withered, but he's definitely old. Like they, he is referred to in the first book at one point. And I didn't bring it up because it's one of those things that like kind of goes unbeknownst is he's referred to as old Ironsides, um, which I forget if he's referred to here or somewhere in here as old Ironsides, but I don't recall first book. He's there. That's kind of like his nickname to go with everything else because he is this old man who's been through so many wars um, and is also like classified or clarified as Ironsides kind of speaking to either the old iron-sided boats, if you want to think about it that way, or as kind of like an iron gold who might not actually be an iron gold, but is like earned the title. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah, that kind of without that's not like that wouldn't be a major reveal either way. So I don't right. think I've messed up. Um, but there's, it it does mean that there's kind of a power vacuum at this point. Um, I'm not sure what sort of power the Olympic Knights like wield, but I know that they're high ranking members of the like ruling class. So, yeah, I, I kind of like to think of them to some degree as, as they're described in the first book and at the beginning of this book is kind of the missing slots as though you had like elite Jedi Knights, (laughs) like they're, they're like the best 12. Of the, council. of the golds. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily sages in the same sort of way, but more of different representations of what's best idolized or revered in gold society. And okay. so while we don't know each of the 12 positions, we do know that they're revered. They're kind of their faces of the society, along with Octavia and the Furies. We know of the Rage Knight and the Morning Knight. And that brings me to, there's 10 others. Is one of them the Night Knight? <laughs> I don't think so. We do also it, know from It's probably the Dusk, book, isn't it? It's Dusk Knight. Dusk Knight would be interesting. Uh, we do know that one of them is the Hearth Knight okay. uh, from the first book. But yeah, those are. I think those are the only three that have been revealed up until this point. But those are three of them. Gotcha. <laughs> so it's not necessarily surrounding, you know... I feel like it's more in correlation with the houses than anything else, like the House of Mars, the the like 12 houses to some degrees. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think that's more the indicator, but yeah. Because okay. Hearth would be Ceres, Rage is Ares, you know, Morning is uh, Apollo, probably. Yeah, because Apollo mm, drags out the sun. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's probably accurate for the most part. That's complete off-the-cuff speculation that I hadn't thought about before. I assume it's probably right or I'm so very wrong that I'm not ever going to adjust my opinion. So, I assume it's probably right. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, regardless, no one is going to convince me that I'm wrong at this point. So yeah, it'll that's be, true. 
fine. Uh, so I want to talk about the familiar face here that we see at the table that's very shocking to Darrow uh, is Evie showing up. And we'll talk about her more in the next section. But I just want to get your quick thought on uh, your surprise to her returning right now. I had all but forgotten about her as a character. Did you know that in episode two, you thought she was going to be a really big deal? Did I? You did. You were like, I, she's for sure coming back. There's going to be something. There's no way you would put these characters in and they wouldn't come back. And lo and behold, we do get all the characters coming back. Uh, the chapter ends with Evie and the Sons of Ares and that whole conversation. And the next begins with an explosion. Something very shocking. We go into mm-hmm. chapter nine, The Darkness. I've got to I've got to remark and like talk about how incredible the whole explosion scene is in so few words, like three or four paragraphs describe this incredible amount of pain. And it's so visceral, like even when like Darrow pops his shoulder back into his socket, like oh, mm-hmm. oh against the wall, like just rolls it in. Quivering out breath as it pops into place. Like I've never dislocated any joint, but I've had like shoulder problems and like knee problems and stuff from swimming that shit sucked <laughs> like just to just to read that i i almost felt it it sucked <laughs> the needles tickle my fingers like it was so well described so darrow quickly deposits uh the the jackal after saving his ass from the explosion um in with uh the police that are coming to save him and a number of other people even though most everyone inside of the bar was liquidated by the explosion mm-hmm. um, how do you feel about the return of Evie, Mickey and eventually Harmony you know how about how they're treating Mickey <laughs> uh, it so it feels like Evie's Evie's clearly on a power trip like of course she, I mean, she was a slave she was a slave but even back I, I don't know if it's an attribute of like the progression of how well Pierce Brown writes throughout, like between then and now, but it didn't feel like Evie was so harbored so much rage towards Mickey. Like it, she obviously she didn't like like him, but it didn't it didn't seem like she was particularly hateful towards him. And I guess it totally makes sense that she would be, but it seems like as soon as she got some like. A little bit of power over him and maybe some some words from other people kind of influencing her that maybe now she's particularly brutal towards Mickey. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It felt like in the first book, I feel like it felt like kind of like a, a quiet pain, you know, like yeah. she wasn't talking much. She was very kind of reserved about the whole thing. Okay, that's that's probably a better way to look at it. And I get, yeah, she's probably seething with rage behind quiet okay so what about mickey and harmony though uh mickey seems broken mickey mickey's just broken mickey doesn't have his drugs you know yeah that's true and he's just kind of been carved up emotionally by everyone Mm -hmm. else harmony harmony also seems different she seemed more level-headed and more disciplined but like knows where the where the plan is going and knows how to how to train and what needs to be done in order to accomplish the goals. And now it seems a lot more unhinged and less tactical mm-hmm. than Dancer was as the leader. Yeah. I, okay. I don't know I don't I don't know if that's just her stepping into that role or if she was always kind of harboring those thoughts. It's hard it's hard to tell but she seems different too. I dig that. Uh I think that the interesting part with Harmony for sure is that she is so 
Before she was very gung ho and willing to like call people out, and now she is quiet and reserved to a point where she also kind of she's very clearly manipulative of um, Evie as yeah. she's sent her out on multiple suicide bombings, and Evie keeps returning. You know, <laughs> like I mean, good for Evie for living through it, but like also terrible. Yeah, exactly. But then we also get the other reveal that Dancer is dead. I don't know if I believe it because this seems like this seems like a rogue faction that broke off and like split from the party so you think harmony is lying yeah she doesn't seem truthful she doesn't seem straightforward about things i maybe he's dead but i don't i don't think if he is dead i think harmony killed him okay i don't i don't think she naturally gained this position i think either she broke off from the main sons of aries faction that dancer was leading or she killed dancer and uh took it by force how do you feel like that relates to like the goals of the sons of aries though like like you said like if she's broken off to the faction and darrow was a tool to the sons of aries as a whole how does that how does that like relationship impact each other like how do those those are obviously like oppositely grinding gears right based on what we know about harmony and darrow's relationship yeah i think there is think about titus who definitely had the same motivations as darrow but less self-control and less uh less composure and that scene that sort of contrast i feel like can be seen between the way dancer led and the way harmony is leading interesting that's a really good insight pj good work you're (laughs) you're getting better (laughs) thank you was that condescending enough for you absolutely it's a good contrast it's the same goal but it's just different opinions on how forceful they can be to to realize that goal and there's something to be said about taking the more violent and more aggressive approach because the the more you do it that way the faster you get results Mm -hmm. and the sooner your people come out of slavery but it's riskier seem to come out yeah like hypothetically hypothetically right that would be the goal but in darrow's case and in the case of like basically what dancer was proposing and sort of crafting as a plan it's a slow, slow process, and everyone continues to suffer while that process manifests. Dancer had the sort of long view on things where it, was, it wasn't it was about mm-hmm. the current generation. It was about the kids, and it was like kind of about the future, right? right? Or at least we, we can kind of infer that based on the way that he was planning things and acting. And meanwhile, yeah. Harmony is taking the current kids um, to turn them into war machines. And I find it very interesting where like Darrow's like, you have a hundred quote super soldiers quote yeah you're fucked like (laughs) i fought a thousand (laughs) yeah in theory exactly and um that said this gives a lot like this whole scene gives a lot of insight to like the questions of before where all these bombings are happening and it was kind of up in the air is this the sons of aries no it doesn't seem like their mo blah 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 well it's a it's completely different leader with a completely different opinion on how things should be done I, I find it really interesting to moving into kind of the next thing, the conversation that happens between Evie and Mickey, the sort of like, no, 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 Domina, as Mickey realizes that he's like fucked up in language because he's now the slave. And so, you know, for Darrow, the word, word makes me recoil in disgust. And it feels like the answer is very counter Eo's dream because Eo's dream seems to be well, Eo's dream was really just live for more, more than anything else, and like free people, um, take down the society. But to speak to kind of Darrow's 
seeming goal, it had more to do with just dismantling the society, not just killing golds. Otherwise, he would have gone the route of Titus, right? Right. Well, I, I guess the difference, it, it's a difference between take it down versus take it over. Yeah. Yeah. Like dismantle and it or climb to the top. That's it. That Yeah, for sure. That is definitely like EB's point more or less is that now I'm on top of you, even though you're just a violet and I'm just a pink. Like it also shows how easy it is to like fall back into that kind of trap, you know, as opposed to fixing the problem. You're just reallocating resources or your own power. So the you're on top. Power is corrupting and EO is not EO, Jesus. Evie is definitely susceptible to that corruption. She is. It's, it, oh. <laughs> yeah. Not only susceptible, but like very easily. She's drunk with by it. it. She's right. drunk with power over Mickey. There's there's almost no question there. I find Harmony's point here too very interesting over the next couple of pages. It does kind of speak to some of the things that we've talked about in terms of her sort of betrayal of the morals or ethics of the sons of Ares, um, especially the sort of the sort of mentality that she has. But more than that, I think she's able to exert influence and pressure over Dara with lines like dine with the masters and forget the slaves and other things like that. Like she's very clearly got she's either drunk with her own sort of power or ideology and is able to say that or she knows what to say to get him to do things. Okay. Um, yeah, I could I could see that. It seemed more like it's taking longer than she expected. And it seems like he's just kind of living in the society as a gold now and isn't making much progress. Mm-hmm. And it's That's just like kind of blaming I totally agree. Yeah. And just kind of blaming him on like blaming him for not doing more. Like they even they even talk about Titus to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They could definitely see it I could definitely see it as a manipulation and knowing like this will get him. This will kick him in the pants a little bit. These two kind of go hand in hand, right? Harmony proposes the plan for Dara to infiltrate and bomb the gala, where Octavia the Sovereign is going to be at, as well as a ton of other golds, two thousand of like the highest ranking golds, big part of the upper echelon of society. And we also figure out what Eo's second surprise was, which is that she's with child, and that's like her "I'm with child" is the last line that she says, living to her sister like get rid of the crib when you have a kid and that has like heartbreaking and heart-wrenching implications that i'd like to get to in a second but i feel like there's also an obvious emotional manipulation here playing into what she just said oh for sure absolutely um and it, it also sort of brings up the the question of who who's who's in charge here and who has like control over what darrow does like he's he's been working as an agent of the Sons of Ares, but now it's like the person who was kind of his peer. She trained him and like got him in shape, but she wasn't like that far o- like above him. It seemed early on is now like calling the shots, and it doesn't seem like she has the authority to do that. And is I, I feel like it's just kind of a real muddy situation of like what should Darrow do here. And is he autonomous or not? Because he's been working without any sort of insight from the Sons of Ares for, what, three, four years now? So to suddenly get like, I, w- I don't know, would you call them orders? Yeah, I mean, they are orders. Whether or not he follows them is a completely different question. And Whether I, or not he takes them as seriously as he might from Dancer is entirely separate. I don't think he would have taken them seriously at all without that hollow um, recording of EO. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think it's a entirely... A manipulation play to kind of totally. get him to follow what she says because it's going to incite rage and incite 
just pain. And that's, and that's a powerful tool to have over somebody that you're ordering. And it gets into the next chapter a little bit too. It's like in the first two pages of the next chapter um, where like Darrow just like repeats this scene over and over and over again with her whispering to Dio about the kid and having a kid and how like now it's not just Dio that's in the ground. It's his entire, it's like his family. It was a future that could have existed had this not happened. And he kind of like, he obviously seeps into like a deep kind of broken like the next chapter is called broken but he feels very broken in the way that he becomes depressed at this point right. and kind of surrenders to the will of harmony yeah yeah he's just god that's such a stab to the heart to hear that i think he needed to hear it i think he needed to hear i think no matter what he needed to hear that i think the other part of that though too that we didn't talk about is that harmony and her kind of explanation of way of aries but also like we heard aries in the bar or the club when that blew up like we know that to some degree like there's i don't know well i mean it's a giant like vague question mark of who aries is and so it lets us like do you want to know what like exactly what this reminds me of mr robot f society mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> hmm. No, I, I totally agree with you. It does kind of have that sort of like, so to to explain for anyone who doesn't know, it's sort of like an underground group, of course, that that's sort of the parallel, who you're unsure who is leading it. And um, it's someone unexpected is who is leading the group the whole time. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. All told, it does kind of feel like that. It's really interesting that Darrow agrees and decides that that's what he wants to be. After that, we pick back up with the Jackal and we find out, like we'd mentioned earlier, that he doesn't have all the information in the world. Like he seemed to be this godly sort of uh, overmind who knew everything that was going on everywhere because of his media influence. He doesn't know that it was the Sons of Ares or assumes wrongly about them because he says it's not their MO. He's not wrong. It's not their MO, but their MO has changed because... Their leadership has changed. Effectively, they're dealing with an entirely different and unpredictable Sons of Ares. They can't really point to past attacks and decide or make uh, make plans around that because that's it's it's not going to be predictable that way. Um, so I, I think he's not wrong. It's not the yeah. Sons of Ares as as Darrow knew them, but it is the the Sons of Ares as an organization. Yeah, nonetheless, it's the Sons of Aries. Right. Totally. After that sort of conversation with the Jackal, we get a lot of good internal monologue here from Darrow. It's actually, it's really excellently written. Um, it just doesn't feel good to rehash it on the show. But he discusses his motivations, how he's grown cold and away from his friends. Um, he's reflecting on like Fitcher and Severo and their like father-son relationship and like what he would potentially could have or would have potentially done to them. And sort of the damage that he will do or has already maybe done to his friends. He reflects that the society is bullshit, that he was choosing to like live in the lie. So absorbed by climbing the rungs of power that he lost his goal. What do you think about this? This seems like very classic radicalization. (laughs) (laughs) You're so right. I mean, that that is absolutely the rhetoric that... uh, Somebody like trying to get somebody into a radical group would try to incite like those those kinds of feelings are poison. But he's not wrong. But yeah, it it definitely feels like he went from being a part of a rebel group to being a part of a terrorist organization very quickly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now I see that. 
And maybe it's just the sort of insight that he has from living with the golds um, and not seeing just evil in them everywhere, which is the the viewpoint that he had before. But yeah, it, it definitely seems a lot more uh, <laughs> inflammatory. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I feel like he's actually kind of battling at certain points in this dialogue and monologue, um, dialogue with himself monologue. He's battling with the thoughts back and forth between like nature versus nurture like i feel like that's a that's a large part of the kind of the conversation inside of the section to some degree is like the society is fucked all these people are fucked they're they're screwed they're bad they're bad they're bad but then he kind of like he lands on roke right and roke is kind of the sort of saving grace of all of these it's like well he's not a bad person he exists inside of the society he doesn't really he doesn't i don't know if he innately shares those problems and that's sort of like his mental process so he goes to actually see him. Though there there was the conversation, and maybe it was just Roke trying to rationalize or reason with what had just happened. But when the when the ship went down, when the ship exploded, yep, eight hundred thirty eight people. Yeah, and uh, Roke was just like, "Well, they they died doing what they were born to do, like serving us and making society better." Yeah, I don't know that it was explicitly in those terms. You know, like it was it was meant like they enlisted, but then Darrow says kind of by force like or by birth you know yeah so there there are bits of roke that i think rationalize like i'm rationalizing right now um for roke but uh i think there are bits of roke that rationalize for society but it feels like he's amendable to the cause you know like he has enough of a heart where he can he can see it but he also is the devil's advocate kind of without knowing it for the other side but for the reader, he's kind of the devil's advocate. But I think uh, Roke being one of the one of the saving graces of the Golds makes a lot of sense. I would think mm-hmm. that several would co- probably be up there in in Darrow's mind, but I think Roke is probably the, the the forerunner, if not Mustang. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with you. I think like Mustang and Roke are probably the most relevant either emotionally or by proximity because Roke was with him for the Academy and Severo has been gone for two and a half years. He does mention Severo and talk about it, but if Severo had been around him, I think at this point he might have a very different basis of reality. Yeah, that's true. I think, but he's been separated and isolated for so long. And he's been shit that, posting constantly. Yeah. The only thing that Severo does is send him <laughs> memes. So <laughs> shitty unicorn memes. Um, <laughs> Unicorns with dicks for, for, for horns. horns. fuck i I mean i've done that once or twice but like we're still friends yeah i mean we've done worse (laughs) i i love the conversation in general with rokindero you know as it continues obviously and as they continue kind of march through their thoughts like we'd already previously discussed about society and whatnot darrow is kind of resolving in his head that this is the last time that he's going to see roke but he wants to save roke from the bombing right so we we specifically get the line I feel like this is one of many that we can point out, but like, why do we need another life is what Roke says in response to Darrow's comment of like, we would have been brothers in another life and then proceeds to inject him yeah. with drugs to knock him out. So, so but at, at some point he says something, he thinks something along the lines of like, there's no going back now. Like I'm locked into mm-hmm. this plan, but not quite, not quite locked in. Right, but regardless, we've got problems to deal with with Roke at this point because he has some, like, hankering bit of information that, you know, like, we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So where where do you stand? 
I think he'd be a bigger deal if he was alone, but he's not because Severo also presumably knows something from the uh, end of the academy, the or end of the institute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, editing the footage. And I'm just waiting for that to come back into play. And I think it will once Darrow kind of reconvenes with Roke. And they've already, I think they've already put it in motion that Severo's coming back per the Jackal. Yes, yeah, he's coming back from Pluto. So at, I'm guessing there will be a reunion of the three of them and they will all sit down and they will all discuss what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know though, I feel like- because he's actually effectively like waged war <laughs> between gold factions. But- it's definitely an interesting problem that like Roke kind of has to navigate to being from a, a minor house, the Fabii house. Um, yeah, like they're they're important enough, obviously. Like Roke's a part of the Institute and he has other family members who have been. But that said, he's not a Bologna, right? Like he's not an Augustine. He's not an Arcos, even though like Arcos isn't of Mars. He is of a uh, of a like semi mid-tier cloth. I love, especially in this section, the fact that Roke is willing to offer up his money and loans from I think Quicksilver uh to buy out darrow's contract and he's going to buy him out to free him and that's ultimately what convinces darrow that like you can't die like you you're willing to like sacrifice everything like your future and everything else yeah for for me for fucking me like wow as a friend like crazy crazy commitment there i'm i'm curious now like is it that darrow has surrounded himself with like intentionally with people that are like this has he rubbed off on people or is he completely misunderstanding what most golds are like in reality? That's interesting. That's an interesting overall prospect. Yeah. And I, I think it go kind of any way. Like, I, I feel like it's probably a lot of them are reasonable and compassionate and whatever, but the status quo kind of trumps everything else. Right, right. Which he even Roke like does not love the status quo in the previous book as he talks about it with his mom and everything else. Like it's it's clear that Roke stands in sort of silent agreement with the status quo for the most part. Yeah. It's it's an interesting question on whether or not Darrow actually rubs off on them. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. guess we'll figure out yeah. hopefully soon. Let's continue. Okay, so we move into chapter eleven, which is red. Um and Tactus kicks off a really big and interesting discussion here in terms of like research, like right off the bat. So he says, and it's an italics, woe for the lone god of the sea, his friends like mind abandoned he. And that's a portion of the poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is all about a lonely dude on a ship by English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge in it. It depicts a whining tale of a lone mariner returning home after an unfortunate journey where everyone else is lost while he is climbing up and down the ropes to like look out over the sea. Um, this all starts because he shot an albatross at the beginning of the poem. Did and the albatross curse him? Yes, yes. Yeah, so the general like the albatross for, himself? Well, no. So for sea mariners, and I am not sure if this originates from the poem or from history itself, but generally speaking... And like anyone who's watched The Lighthouse, I have not yet. But generally speaking, killing an albatross when you are a sailor or of a like sailor's code is sort of the worst thing that you could do because they're good signs of land and other things like that. So 
the reason you don't kill an albatross is because they're they're flying out over sea. They're, they're, they've got the furthest wingspan, can reach the furthest in, make it back, no problem, riding the air. So you don't fuck with the albatrosses if you're out on the sea. That's a lesson for everyone. I believe However, it's albatry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ancient mariner kills an albatross, and ultimately the general interpretation you know, is that there's a terrible loss inflicted on the ship and it's his fault because he effectively cursed the ship by killing the albatross. The interpretation as the story goes or as the idiom goes is that the albatross is instead a symbol and the line is the albatross around one's neck or like a weight that someone's carrying. I I equate it to some degree as the same emotional weight, literature weight as the crown of thorns um, in the, in the Bible with Jesus and everything else that from, from Christianity there, there are a number of equanimous symbols that we could talk about, but basically it's the weight of one's decisions going forward and the results of one action, one's actions and the choices and how that impacts us as we move through life. Okay. Um, so it's basically heavy burden or guilt that you carry from an earlier decision. Mm-hmm. So it's an incredibly, incredibly popular in popular culture. It's referenced all over the place. It's perhaps... I, I think everything's mimetic. Everyone copies everything else that's ever existed. So nothing is truly original. But with that, there are a number of references across a dozen, hundreds of pieces of literature to this. Is Darrow's albatross, the weight, the burden, the guilt, the actual Pegasus, which is the bomb that hangs around his neck? Or is it Eo's dream? I think that they can kind of bleed together a little bit. Because I think the the Pegasus around his neck being being the bomb is there because, or at least in his mind right now, it's there because he hasn't acted quickly enough or well enough on EO's dream. So I know that muddies things in that in that question and then in that answer, but ultimately I think I think it'd be the Pegasus. It'd be the bomb. Like th- this this bomb is sort of the curse that he's bearing because he has not done well enough to have completed his uh goals by now or con like he's lost confidence he's lost the confidence of the sons of Ares to continue and to rise and to become a significant enough figure within the gold society that they could use him they essentially need him now since he has access to fuck shit up to to go off what you're saying because i like the general idea let's look at the two lines that tactus quotes from the poem and it's, it's in the old style of like long English poems where they'd have like 200 lines and it's basically a novella, right? But in poetry form, which is nuts. So the line is, Woe for the lone god of the sea, his friends like mine abandoned he, right? Mm-hmm. So taking, picking that apart a little bit, the lone god of the sea clearly refers to Darrow in, in terms of context, but his friends like mine abandoned he, is the thing that I kind of want to like narrow in on a little bit. He's been dropped by everyone important right now. He does not have Mustang, does not have his position with Augustus. He, though Tactus doesn't know this, but he, he doesn't really have the same position with the Sons of Ares. Like he's just kind of lost altogether. Roke's not there. Severo's not there. No one, no one's there. I, I totally agree with you. So he's alone. My question is, did kind of to, to like add on to that is like, did Darrow push them away? 
of his own like inability to admit like whatever else was going on or was he always destined to kind of be abandoned based on his cause like did darrow intentionally do this to distance himself or was this always going to be the case so i i guess that's sort of it's probably a bit of a self self-fulfilling prophecy he knew it was going to happen so he didn't necessarily mm-hmm. take care to maintain those relationships if that makes sense like no no matter what those relationships will crumble whenever he reveals who he is or enacts whatever like ultimate plan that he has um and not allowing himself to get super close to the people that he connects with makes that easier to do yeah definitely okay so it's hard to it's hard to really answer that straightly i think one kind of drives the other and the other drives the one right that in mind let's move to some shitty jokes uh so uh i love the interaction between adrius and nero basically calling him out as a cannibal piece of shit right after this great interaction with tactus like, what's what's the quote page 90 um i wasn't yeah. aware that you enjoyed banquets these days i'm not sure the fair will be to your liking yeah it's it's just it's so good <laughs> it's it's just after like a lot of like cleverness on the side of of like tactus and darrow and everything else like it's just like it's good to get a refreshing refreshing like piece of shit joke in the middle of that mm-hmm. and calling his own son a fucking cannibal is wow yeah <laughs> Yep. <laughs> it's uh it's tough. It's good though. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a very it's a very gold insult too. The way mm-hmm. that they say it, like very high speak. No, no question. No question. There's also in this chapter beyond that, there's a lot of like beautiful politicking that goes on in the background. So like Leto moves to protect the arch governor saying, "Hey, we need to have three sober lancers." Of which Tactus protests because he's a fucking pixie and like likes to get drunk and, you know, fuck pinks and whatnot like that's that's his life for the most part do yeah. drugs really drugs more than anything else actually yep pretty much very very big into drugs so we also get kind of the jackal's unflinching reaction to being insulted by his father in which he like literally just jokes back at him and doesn't make it a big deal even though if i were him i'd be writhing on the inside and i'm sure he is or even hearing leto's ardors like because leto has kind of taken his place at his father's side and his older brother Cadrius's place who previously were informed at the end of the chapter died and we kind of were that was hinted at in the previous book but it wasn't really I think explained it was I think it was mentioned so his name wasn't put down but okay. it was mentioned by Mustang that okay. she had a brother die um which kind of led you to believe that like maybe she didn't have siblings that lived but then the jackal showed up and blah 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 but yeah yep uh Leto is kind of meant to be the replacement brother a competitor to some degree with darrow but not immediately if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it feels like and we also get uh darrow's agreeing to pliny's pliny i don't give a shit he's a piece of whining garbage uh pliny's request to come when he's called like the dog he is apparently Mm -hmm. um to pliny on uh on 93 which i think darrow kind of gives into mostly because of the bomb you know is gonna is gonna go off because it's gonna kill pliny too so he's like fuck you dude yeah i'll listen i'll come over i'll explode right next to you but very much page 93 in the and its ilk feels like chess pieces being set up with superb writing that we know is going to pay off yeah yeah they're 
I mean, it's it's a house of cards, very intricately being stacked. Maybe not. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. Yeah, that was that was totally right. I just hiccuped. It's oh. fine. Um, <laughs> it's it's the carbonation. We're good. Shortly thereafter, we are we are introduced to Octavia Loon in the flesh. We'd previously heard her voice over over the HC and seen her in the mines, but we really hadn't like seen her in person. Right? She's the right. supreme sovereign who's in charge of society. On the whole, there's no other body that really reports to her. She, whatever she says is law, as is defined a little bit later. Right. So one of the things that I found really interesting is the way that she's described in a line on page 95. Uh, she listens to the words as the mountain listens to the whispering and screaming wind through its crags crags, and around its peaks. I feel like this is great and very intentional writing on Pierce's part. It kind of points us back to our understanding of Octavia, where she is able to like ignore the people who don't matter and take into account the people who do matter, so the people coming from the lower crags. But also, she pays attention to what's going on, and she has influence over the syndicates beneath, you know, the crime organizations and everything else, as previously mentioned by the Jackal, but then also like listens to the people who matter among the golds it's it's just so well defined inside of a single line i think that is a that's a something i hadn't thought of according to the jackal she has connections with the crime syndicates do you think that can be trusted well so the jackal explicitly said it at one point i I can't remember if it was in seven or eight but he specifically said that she influenced syndicates like mentioned specifically but he also said that the sons of Ares were pawns that he had influence over. True, true. But he was saying it was like private public knowledge okay. that she had influence gotcha. over the syndicates. Like it was it was kind of like a like the people who knew know, but those who don't don't yeah. have any clue. She's got her fingers in the underworld of Night City. Just kidding. It's Cyberpunk 2077. But um mm. has her fingers in the in all of the other kind of pies going on that she can. Maybe her furies also like occupy those positions right like we really don't know we only yeah. get one by name um what do you think of the furies we get aja they but- were ominous and they were i mean they they kind of read to me like bodyguards that somehow somehow were a part of the society too like they had like high ranking roles but basically just kind of acted as enforcers and I, I'm not entirely sure what they do at this point. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Like I mean, it, yeah, it's it's definitely left in the air, but with the assumption. Mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. they seem to command a good deal of respect. Maybe not when chaos is breaking out, but like people like they they seem to be well respected. Is I guess what I'm saying. They're they're well respected enough where like they deserve mention mm-hmm. or to be known. You right. know, like it's not like just a a gaggle of people hanging out behind her. No, no, no. They, they are the, the furies. Like they're important in some context. I'm so bad about like knowing exactly how everything's set up, but I imagine them sitting kind of around a table with the sovereign. I kind of think of, and this is with, with kind of the same context. I think of like the 12 Olympic nights is like the nights of the round table. And then the furies kind of feel like the immediate advisors to King Arthur. So it's kind of like you get you get the knights, you get like a layer of three people and then you get like Patsy queen. Yeah. <laughs> no, like Patsy. You're you're fired. <laughs> Patsy cracks coconuts together. <laughs> to sound like a horse. It's important. It's, 
Yes, according to Arthur, but he's wrong. He might be mm. the king, but he's wrong. That was Monty Python and the Kings Holy Grail. aren't wrong. Well, okay. Cardus's repudiation of his brother Julian and Cassius, both of his brothers, to be honest, Julian and Cassius, is kind of interesting. I feel like it's very stark and different to what we feel about families otherwise. I don't, I don't you know? necessarily know that's true. Especially okay. for the high-ranking families, like uh, think about the think about Augustus. What? Yeah, the Augustuses. He he cares way more about his power than and and his like position in society than he cares about his own family. He protects his siblings or he protects his children because they're the heir to his legacy. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of love there. It seems like family is kind of. A means of continuing your story as opposed to actually something to love and cherish and share. But that said, sort of the honor of you've wronged my family seems to kind of come above love for each other. Okay. Does that so, make sense? Does Yes. Yeah, does that track? I, 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 totally, I totally get more of what you're saying now. So in, in my head... I do agree with you on the side of like honor being greater than love or like whatever whatever sort of bond is made between family members. But I feel like there is a separation with Carnus that's a little bit different. I do agree with you on Nero's lens. I feel like Carnus is an even more extreme view of Nero's lens mm-hmm. where Nero is upset that his son died and his his son died, which obviously means that he was fallible in some way. But Nero thought that he wasn't and is upset that he died. Whereas Carnus has this alternate perspective on Julian and even to some degree Cassius, where he kind of he thinks of Julian immediately as chaff to be filtered out from the wheat. Um, and even Cassius is being soft because he's upset that Julian, who's a shitlord or who's just a piece of shit, garbage, not a shitlord. Severo's the shitlord, but because like Julian and Cassius don't equate themselves, like there's there's just like a Parnas is like a bloody dis- disinterest in the family members who aren't striving to be the absolute best and most superior people, which is maybe why Carnus has done so well. Wasn't that kind of known though when Julian went in to the institute? Like they, they, I feel like it was towards the end of the first book that Cassius mentions like. We all knew he didn't deserve to have been invited. So yeah, it's, like it, it's, it was it's in it the was, mud chapter. Yeah, right? like was, they get into that conversation. It was clear that he was there to be sacrificed and there to be killed. Um, yeah, but Carnus isn't upset that he was killed. That, I think that's no, the point. no, no. no I, matter what, Carnus would have been okay with it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's true. I, I think that's my like. I, yeah. I agree with you for some other like power seeking goals i think that like honor and love are obviously a very different thing and that like nero honors honor a lot more than he loves the uncondi- or that he appreciates unconditional love he has some form of unconditional love and protection for his children therein but he also honors honor more yeah uh, cuz he he cares about leto and he cares about darrow when darrow's disrespected he's disowned leto has proven to be a uh a valiant standard bearer for him. So he's almost willing to succumb to Pliny's influence and like let Leto be the standard bearer for Augustus going forward. Right. So I think you're right on the honor, credit and love thing. I feel like Cornus beats a completely different superiority drum. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, mm, I don't know about superiority. I think, um, well, yeah, 
Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, pretty clear that it's superiority, especially when like they get into the pride argument. Like Darrow says, pride is just a shout into the wind, and then Karnas goes off in his own rant. It's it's an interesting like dichotomy of it, of like, obviously like people within the society are allowed to have different opinions, so they do. And so some people just have more extreme opinions, even when you approach the crazy extremist opinions of eugenics, which is what Karnas supports. Like realistically and the entire society supports um yeah pretty much to an extent i mean to to an extent that's how the society was built right like it is a product of it totally it's it's a hundred percent a product of eugenics we finally after this moment with a little bit of hinting from carnis see mustang and who the fuck is mustang with but cassius my fucking god what the letdown of the century to to like have that come as this opposite fruition <laughs> of Darrow finally seeing Mustang again, and it's the hand of the guy who wants to literally tear his throat out. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I didn't necessarily see it coming, but I wasn't surprised by it, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah, like, I, I didn't guess it, I don't think. Maybe I did. But yeah, it was definitely heartbreaking for Darrow. Right, right. <laughs> Understandably. Absolutely. And it only gets worse later. Um, oh, yeah. But as he's kind of like working through these visual emotions and everything else and like working through the the whole scenario with the golds, he realizes that some golds are the problem and other golds aren't in part because of his reaction with Roke earlier and decides that among these lines, he could carve a civil war between the golds because of their pride one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that that is going to be his solution. Do you think that was yep. a do you think that was a an off the cuff kind of decision? Or do you think that's something that he's been brewing for a while? Pierce? No, Darrow. Oh, Darrow. Um I feel like it was kind of a a culmination of the albatross, right? Because he he has he's in decision making mode. He's like, okay, either I blow up this entire gala or I try to find another way. And I think part of him especially with Mustang showing up and other things like that, realized that there were some people who are just people who see themselves outside of the society and like want the best. Like him and like Roke and Mustang are two good examples. Severo, a distant example of a meme lord um, who deserves to live. Uh, but like Carnus is the opposite example who supports eugenics. Even Nero is a bad example. Um, Jackal's in a weird misty in between where all he cares about is power. And so like, Presented with those five, even as examples, I would land on, yeah, I've got about 30% of the people, if we wait the jackal as two people, agreeing with the idea. So I would rather not kill everyone and maybe figure out a way through. And this seemed to be the only way through where he would also maintain some kind of power in House Augustus. Because Augustus is was always going to be a more powerful house. So... Mm-hmm. He was only going to be leveraged down if he didn't leverage up this situation. Yeah. Yeah. He was never going to get into this place of power again. No, he was slipping. He's slipping, man. Yeah, Pliny, 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 piece of bullshit pine tree (laughs) is uh, is ruining his shit. Pliny the pine tree. Yeah, basically. Um, Pliny the elder. Pretty much. He's uh, pulling... Pulling the strings. He and the gar he and the beer are both garbage. It's cool. What? All right. Pliny the Elder. Oh yeah. <laughs> come on. Come on. It was a joke from last week. All right. So now we get into chapter twelve, Blood for Blood. 
which is a great title chapter to go in. It should be noted that this is actually also, we're heading into part two right now. Um, In almost everyone else's context and in pretty much the rest of the series as I have it laid out, I want to split it among the part lines as well as possible. But this is one of the lines that I felt like it made sense to cut around because the drama of the previous cliffhanger versus this cliffhanger is better (laughs) for you you have to suffer you know oh i didn't suffer at all though (laughs) oh i it's like there was a there was a good amount of just carnage that i needed i needed Mm -hmm. some action here so So i'm glad you i'm glad you pushed it i i definitely i definitely agree with you i feel like the the intro chapter is super aggressive and then we get a little we get a lot of like the sort of like lingering backstory in the pol- politicking of the the chess pieces being moved around to be in play then we get this chapter chapter 12 which is a big deal mm. um to speak to the break quote here ch- part two is called break and the quote is if you're a fox play the hare if you're a hare play the fox by lorn Arcos. and at this point it's pretty cool that all the in-between chapters are quotes by characters, right? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. As we'd mentioned before, a lot of writers like to like pull other writers in, but technically speaking... He's, he's pulling himself picked, in? He's, he's only picked himself. He's only picked <laughs> characters within his own universe that are talking for the most part. So, like, perfect. Mm-hmm. Ideal in every way. Yeah. Uh, and we get a very different Darrow at the beginning of this chapter, kind of enabled by the end of last section. Right. Right. So Darrow claims the spotlight in the middle of this gala, walking over and jumping onto the Bologna's table to address the room and to just piss them off. His goal, as stated in the last chapter, is to start a civil war. And so he goes out, does the unspeakable. Everyone else around him is like, what the fuck is he doing? You're making a fucking fool of yourself, you moron, you idiot. And they're even like calling for him to like step down, get off the table. He just does not give a shit. Yeah. And I mean, if his goal is to start a civil war, some of the shit that he, he flings towards the Bolognas might might do it. <laughs> it's it's nearly enough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it um, gets worse. <laughs> of course it gets worse. <laughs> This so fun, fun like conversational fact. Um, the website for uh Pierce Brown's merch over the last couple of months has been shit dash escalates.com, and that encompasses the entire series. <laughs> like, it never gets easier, it always escalates. <laughs> shit escalates. Yep. <laughs> so, um, I feel like that is that is encompassing of this moment, especially wherein it only gets it only gets worse. So, um we, I, I love, I love Tactus's line here, especially considering the sort of Pliny comment in the previous section, where none of the lancers that were immediately protecting Nero were supposed to get drunk. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wherein Tactus says, "Make him." Tactus replies drunkenly, "No, that's what I surmised." <laughs> and uh it's it's just hilarious because it's it, it feels like an out of character word choice which is like a drunk thing but also like him claiming like he's higher because he's throwing out some vocabulary yeah it just totally fits his pixie ass <laughs> character so good yeah it's it's just so so funny on tactus's part because clearly he was 
sneaking drinks the whole time. Mm-hmm. Edward Tactus. I'll drink yeah. to that. <laughs> there we go. And also after that, the piss makes a comeback. Um, <laughs> <in> <laughs> previous chapter. My name, gentle lords and ladies, is Darrow Ow Andromedus. My honor has been pissed upon and I demand satisfaction. And as such, Darrow starts a war by spilling a cup of wine in the name of his non-existent family for the sake of his real dead family with Eo and his unnamed child to regain favor with his adopted one. Yeah, pretty much. It's a series of really weird, like, (laughs) there's there's a lot of interesting things surrounding family for Darrow that I find is interesting, Mm -hmm. but... This specific plot point of demanding blood from a different family is wow. It was interesting right before he does that, right before he like makes this comment. There's the uh, discussion on like any man or woman, any any gold is allowed to essentially like challenge another if they feel they've been wronged by them. So that was having that context, I think, was important. Um and just letting things unfold from there was so satisfying. Yeah, and we were also given context earlier that um, Octavia doesn't generally allow duels inside of the Citadel, right? So that was the entire point of it being a safe place for Darrow, is that there was no way that he was going to be challenged by anyone else or killed in his sleep or have anything else happen to him, is that he was going to be safe within these walls. And so he challenges... Uh, unless it's sanctioned by the sovereign. And so he challenges Bologna in such a grandiose way that there's no choice but for Octavia to allow it to go forward. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's shocking and jarring and great in every way. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, just tipping over the, the wine decanter and Cassius exploding up at him and just chaos chaos ensuing from there yeah it's it's just a wonderful scene like i can i can 100 percent to get back to like some of our other thoughts and themes is like imagining a lot of this book filmed makes perfect fucking oh yeah oh yeah you you get you get like the dark stuff earlier with the low city you move back into the high city you move on to this this like grandiose um harry potter-esque hall but futuristic table hall scene you get him jumping up on their table, kicking their shit over as he walks across it. You see him just pour his glass or decanter of wine right into Cassius's lap where Cassius jumps up with his grab boots and tries to smack this kid across the fucking face because he disrespected his entire family mm-hmm. more than perhaps the death of Julian, his brother. Right. <laughs> like calling out this is almost worse than killing someone in his family uh i don't know about that but close i mean it calls out the blood feud explicitly right yeah that i also think that like darrow very expertly understands the politics of the moment and leans right into it in like way past pliny because he knows that like pliny obviously and leto have been have forsaken him to some degree leto hasn't exactly but pliny has in the way that he's going to be replaced so he's also is not only seizing this moment against the Bologna to take some sort of righteous stance, but also he's charging headlong into the existing, um, you know, I think about what was the worm tongue. Like Pliny is like the worm tongue inside of the Augustus house to some degree, right? To like Theoden's ear. Like he's got the same sort of like political grasp over Nero. Yeah. Yeah. He's not quite the puppet master, but definitely the sort of... 
puppet influencer at the very least. Yeah. You know, what, what were your thoughts on the moment as a whole? Oh, man, he played Nero so well. <laughs> yeah. Like he yeah. played right into his ego so beautifully. It was, I mean, it was, it was very well crafted and obviously very intentional and very carefully chosen speech, but also just satisfying. Yeah, it, it all pays off so well. So before we get into the duel between Cassius and Darrow, which ensues shortly thereafter in the Bleeding Place, which is an interesting um, location name, regardless, <laughs> I, I've always found that to be a like an interesting name for an arena is like the Bleeding Place where people go to die effectively. Like one person is going to bleed out and die. It, it'd be like before like the name Colosseum was really adopted. I guess like the Bleeding Place could be like a placeholder to some degree for like a similar space. And so you would like claim a name like that, but it still feels, it feels alien enough and maybe alienly wrong where it feels like a weird thing to say. I don't know. Finally, for the first time in a long time, we hear from Mustang. So it, it kind of goes without saying that I, I love Mustang's part here, you know, on page 109, absolutely gold in, uh, in all the punny sense is of the word, um, <laughs> You think I'm here because my aching loins thrust me into blown arms. Please. I'm not a bitch in heat. I protect my family by any means necessary. And I I kind of feel like that not only speaks to her character, but also like just sort of digs us into her psyche really yeah. well. So this this line gave me a lot of thoughts and potentially revealed a lot to me. I don't know if I'm on base with it or not, but I'm going to run through what I'm thinking here. One, that she is playing Cassius and she she is not like actually, I don't know, falling for him or sincerely with him. Um, two, she has not like fallen out of love for Darrow because she's taking the time to like have this conversation and make sure that he realizes that even though by her understanding and by her thoughts, he's probably going to die to Cassius. And three, do you, no, do you, actually, no. Okay. Actually, no. Okay. Actually, no. Never mind. I don't think, I don't think that she necessarily thinks he's going to lose because she, she okay. knows his secret. What secret? It's we'll secret. get there. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, but the, the main thing is something that we touched on earlier and I kind of alluded to. I think she is working with her brother, the Jackal, directly. And I think they're plotting things together. Okay. Because who else is her family? It's her dad and her brother. Her her mom's dead. She's a long-lost older brother who's also dead. So it's the three of them in the house that we know of mm-hmm. that are left. And if, it, if she yeah. would do any of this for one of them, he, he, she would just say their name. But she said family, which would be all-encompassing. And might even include Darrow. True. Interesting. Lots lots of sort of, nothing got actually revealed, but lots of kind of wheels turning on that line. So let's let's also talk speculation, right? Because we get like a little bit of like, obviously like jealousy inducing perspective later from Cassius as he's like, yeah, like I saw her in ways that you didn't. Like I obviously fucked her and like she was moaning my name and everything else. Like there's a lot of, that there that's intentionally goading mm-hmm. but also there's the other context of it which is like why 
would she choose to do that? Taking Cassius's knowledge that he's kind of thrown at Darrow as an insult and Mustang's knowledge and perspective and comment. How do you weigh that as Darrow? I think he knows how Cassius works. He even mentions it. Like it's obvious that he's, he doesn't feel good about what he's saying. It doesn't look like he's feeling good about what he's saying, but he needs to say something to get, get Darrow's sort of focus thrown a little bit. I think what Mustang said was probably calculated by her to kind of protect herself. Like, obviously this is a volatile situation. There's probably a pretty good chance things are going to break out between like everyone else. And she probably doesn't want to die, but die at the hands of Darrow. Like she doesn't want to ally herself with the Bologna's in Darrow's eyes right before this duel. Yes, you're right. Moving on from that. Uh, the reminiscing of memories of the Institute gets me every single time. There are obviously a handful of them as they talk about the banquet. They they move on to like the sieging of Minerva. And the, the one that stabs me in the lol heart is uh, <laughs> the stealing of the cook. Like I laugh <laughs> at that line every single fucking time because it's one of the most outrageous things. It's in the so first good book though. That is so fucking funny. And to call back to it right here is just like a, in, in the midst of everything else, it's very emotional between the two of them. It's good to like reflect on these moments of like true like brotherhood connection that they had, which is why, yeah. you know, in hindsight, that's why I tried to like emphasize it so much in the first season or the first like bit of the show, because like there there is that brotherly connection there. And th- those are the things like the silly things, the ridiculous things that you do together, yeah. the things that you remember and the things that you hold fondly, like the antics you get up to that aren't necessarily like productive or yeah. like meaningful but they're funny and they're real and they're you know? real. like yeah yeah like hey and, and so remember like, we stole that cook <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly remember remember when i was carrying a cookout over my shoulders and i interrogated everyone asking if they were a cook because we were all so hungry for like a real meal <laughs> like, and i stunned him if they weren't a cook <laughs> like, it's just so good yeah exactly yeah. like it just it it makes me think of just my own experiences with, I mean, you and all our other friends from high school and all my friends from college, like we, we all have these sort of meaningless things that we did that I'll always like remember because they're funny. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Like it's, it is that sort of like reflection as though it's that like it is totally a duality to some degree, especially if you consider age with like high school or like the first couple of years of college, right. With based on where they're at. And so mm-hmm. it is that kind of reflection where it's like, okay, so PJ, you and I have to think about college. We went to riot fest that year. And then the year after we were going to duel to the death <laughs> <laughs> because I killed your brother or you killed mine. I, I feel like there's that sort of analysis on the way that like they're thinking about this kind of thing, right? Like, so like Darrow has this sort of fond memory because everything else that we know about Darrow has been family, 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 family. And for the most part, outside of the, the hell diver bit where he had some friends at work, like he hasn't ever had real friends. And well, he built those friends, friends at work were mostly street. family too. Yeah. Even there, <laughs> they were like his cousins and shit. Yeah. So it's like, it's like the first time that he's had outside perspectives and real friends. So that's like why I think he values Roke 
Severo, Cassius even so much, and he thinks about them as brothers. And so he's so upset in this moment where even despite all of the wrongs that Cassius has done to him, he's okay with what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. My fucking God, what happens next is so good. The duel is just excellent. It's pristine. It's brilliantly written. Mm -hmm. Anything that might have been painful in the first 50 pages of the first book is completely lost in this bit and in the entire rest of this book as this is it's so clean brilliant violent writing Mm -hmm. it's almost basically perfect i i couldn't imagine trying to do this any different as it's described like it is so incredible he describes the movements he describes the pacing he describes the six beats on within four seconds and then the beat off and then resuming with seven and the pauses and unpauses and blocking with the Aegis and everything else. And it's just the fight scenes here are heart-stopping incredible. So good. These six pages deserve an episode itself. Not that that's going to be a thing, but like you could you could pick apart this language at length and it would be wonderful. Yeah, you could. Sadly, that's not this podcast because we have a lot of other shit to talk about. We do. Um, that's true. But the duel is just incredible. And what I find really interesting about this is Darrow, we obviously absorb it from Darrow's perspective, right? Mm. But Darrow at this point, it's almost confusing because Darrow knows Cravat. We know that like Cassius taught him a little bit and he's had some time and clearly he's had a little bit of razor training that we were aware of because he's willing to like go duel um, and people keep like saying no to him. And so finally we see him duel and we see his perspective and He's learned something that is completely outside of what we knew him to know before. Right. Something completely secretive. And uh, that is the Willow Way. The Willow Way. <laughs> the fucking mic drop that is that moment. Yep. In where Darrow, to us, reveals that he is the last student of Lornau Argos. And then he reveals that out loud. You know, and he he is he just completely shatters everyone's expectations by by saying this like people can't buy training from lauren they can't pay for it with the infinite number of credits you have to earn his respect in order to get to that point which is very marcus aurelius like you never you would never get like anything from him unless you earned it and so within the space of his two gap years effectively and and some of that is obviously occupied by the academy and some other bullshit that clearly exists between him and augustus and everything else. All of the free moments were spent with Lorne, the Rage Knight, the retired Rage Knight, training in the Willow Way, which is this intense form of combat. It's just so, so well defined and so well described. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually made me think back to like an early childhood moment of like tactical things that have always stuck with me in terms of like stupid ass shooter games and everything else in, in the long term. But uh, humans are are very like pattern driven. So like if you are sitting there and you're playing paintball and you decide like it's you and two other guys and you every three seconds like turn up to like take two shots, like paint their two positions. Eventually they'll key into that and they'll rotate and they'll expect you to do that. So that the key difference is like breaking the pattern. But Darrow innately understands the nature of like breaking the pattern and how important that is to keeping Cassius in a defensive position this whole time 
Right. And he can't even defend against it because Darrow, not only does he use the will away, but he also uses his unique version of the razor, which is to lock it into a sling blade, into a reaper's scythe. <laughs> yeah. And to like tear around shields. Yeah. Which is just And he mentions terrifying. also like his movement is that of his father's. So it's beyond beyond even the grasp of like what Cravat or the Willow Way expects. It's that dance that his dad taught him. Yeah. Which is it's so fucking cool. Uh, God, this was described so so beautifully and so perfectly, fluidly. Uh we we get hints of from this conversation and the idea that Darrow was a student of Lorne way back in chapter four of this book when him and Tactus are having a conversation about the quote on the wall in New Thebes about whether it was Nero or Lorne. And Nero had recalled it to, to Darrow and had explained that it was Lorne, but Tactus had understood that it was Nero. Anyway, it's, it's fascinating because that was the seed that was planted way back when. Yeah. Kind of hinting towards this. And I didn't think of it. I didn't it never, never crossed my mind that that's why he knew that. But I remembered that scene. Yeah, right, right. They're they're like walking through and talking about it because it's it's a great character building moment for Tactus as they like confront each other on their argument. But I mean, seeds. I, I'm I'm expecting a whole lot of those revelations to present themselves as yeah. this book goes okay. on. Man, I I mean. I, I try to be team no hype uh, based on friends and other things like that. But team no hype is the general idea where you don't get very excited about things because you don't want to get overexcited about something. But dude, I, I can't help but say that this book is like the empire strikes back of books. It just is so fucking good. And I, it's unstoppably one of my favorite novels of all time. So very excited that we're here right now. The description of Mars of the Reaper of Mars razor Darrow just like whipping it from the whip that the razor is this thin hairbraid whip and routing it with electricity to turn it into this violent Reaper scythe to reach around Cassius's Cassius's shield is just so fucking incredible and to see like him get the shit kicked out of him is awesome we get the moment there too where Darrow totally rubs it into the rest of the Bolognas, where he's like, <laughs> your son is going to die, he tells them. And he's just going for the fucking throat. Like, he's just, he literally wants to incite this this civil war yeah. as actively as he can. So I, I, the, think that, I think that's important to remember, is that uh, while this blood feud is a thing that they've agreed upon and have sort of had his main motivation, as far as I can tell, in doing this and in I don't know, challenging Cassius was to start the civil war. And he's, the way he's going to do that is to re- royally piss off the rest of the Bolognas, like antagonize them as much as possible, which I think is hilarious. I, I think that not only that, but like he is, he is like he genuinely, especially given like the moments of reflection that happened at the beginning of his section, he knowingly loves Cassius. Like he appreciates Cassius and everything that he stands for. Mm-hmm. But he also stands in adamant opposition of the Bologna family because he has to, because Cassius forced his hand, because in the originally Nero forced his hand. Like the only way he was going to live is because Nero forced him to kill Julian. He wouldn't have lived otherwise, which led him to this feud with Cassius. You know, like, yeah, fuck. Like this is ultimately Nero's fault. 
what, what's happening in front of him. And he's also doing it for Nero. Just feels like this dichotomy of irony that just like mix, mixes itself up into like a torment of man. It's just it's a it's a constantly twisting problem. Whirlpool. Mm-hmm. Unsolvable at a certain point. Like where where do you untie the Gordian knot? Cassius is almost saved by the sovereign as she decides to rewrite the rules in live time because she's the the god the 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 president that Trump wishes he was <laughs> over everyone else um, of society who can just call things out and make them real. But even then, she's disobeyed by old traditions of by by the telemanises of all people to side with Darrow. Um, or against the Bolognas, either way, if you want to read it that way. Like, they shouldn't be siding with the Augustans. They should probably be siding with the Bolognas, but because they believe in the, like, honorific side of society, they agree with Darrow, and as such, Nero's side of the equation, Cavax and Daxo, Telemannus, mm-hmm. which I, I think is interesting. So I, I think it's probably less siding with the Augustans or against the Bolognas and more against the sovereign and what she is presenting and what she's mm. like how, how she's acting. Rules. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's it's more about that than anything else. Because the, right before that, she is clearly overstepping what her 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 the spirit of what her power is. And okay. getting more into sort of an authoritarian position based on how she's talking. And they, everyone sees the favoritism. Like they know she wouldn't have done this if, if Darrow was on the, on the backslide. They know like he, Cassius was just named a very young Olympic knight. And clearly he has favor with her. Like I, I think it's, I think it's people seeing the corruption and, and pushing against that as opposed to siding with the Augustuses. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I, I like that idea for the Tillman. It says, My whip coils around his extended right arm. I press the button that makes the razor contract, and with the sound of a frozen tree branch cracking in the winter, I claim the sword arm of Cassius Albalona. <laughs> and my fuck, dude. Like... Cassius is at this point known as the best duelist. He's taking everyone out along along the stretch. He's been promoted to the morning night, which is obviously a position of grandeur. It's one of the top 12 people inside of the society. Fury's outstanding. Uh, but like definitely like a knight mm-hmm. in, in all senses of the word, like a commander. Yeah. You know, like, oh, fuck. I was this is bad for him. It's a well, brutal well, moment. Yeah, it's bad for him. Um. <laughs> I will say I spent a lot of time as a kid out in the woods behind my house. Didn't matter the season, summer, winter, whatever. Um, but like that description of the sound of a of a tree branch cracking in the winter is so satisfying. Just the dry, echoing crack of a of a big mm-hmm. limb that you're like pulling Breaking. on. Oh God. Mm-hmm. It's so satisfying. And like I I couldn't so help you but like, trees. feel it. Well, they were yeah. dead. They were dead already. Like just dead trees that were kind of starting to dry out. We would make like forts and stuff with them. But it is a big sound when something like that breaks. Yeah, exactly. A super loud crack that almost echoes. It also has like, especially as a, like a frozen branch breaks, it's got like a crispness to it. Exactly. Like, just like it, it like 
it clearly bounces because everything is so quiet. It's so good. That's what I think when I think of a frozen tree branch. So, so like to, to wrap it around, like the idea that I thought about it the first time, I thought about it as like Indiana Jones wrapping his whip around someone's arm and then turning it to a blade suddenly. And you'd be like, what the fuck? And Indiana Jones would never do that, right? Because that's his character. Like he would never like disarm someone unless they were a Nazi. Literally disarm it. someone. Literally disarm someone unless they were a Nazi and they deserved it. Uh, but like all intents and purposes, that wouldn't happen in that context. And yet this this idea of like wrapping this thin line razor around and then pulling it as though it's just a cord for window drapes to turn it into something solid that is a sword or a, a bladed weapon that cuts your arm off is so visceral. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's gutturally devastating. Yeah, man, it's, it's a brutal weapon. Uh, the Morning Knight has just been uh, disarmed <laughs> uh, in every context of the word. Yep. And then in post, all hell breaks loose, right? Yeah. There are two sides now running amok of each other. This was um, also like it was it was a chaotic read, but it was very like very cool. Like I could imagine only- I could imagine the the let's go back to cinematography. I can I can imagine like a single shot take of a camera like rolling through the crowd and showing all yeah. of these like one-on-one combats happening totally totally it, it feels very red wedding cool like <laughs> literally like leto the number one successor to nero at this point gets beheaded neat yep. <laughs> like cornus just fucking charges and is like demanding augustus's head does it not once but twice and then settles by beheading leto and at that moment, Darrow's season is beautiful. And it's this whole thing where, like, Leto does not deserve the punishment that he's receiving. Like, it's not his fault to be in the position he is in. But he's an honorable man. You know, like, that's the trouble. But getting beheaded isn't his fault. Like, he was winning that fight. And then he seized up almost by magic. Yeah, almost. almost. Not, not actual magic. Not actual magic, but uh, something. There's no force here. Something, something sinister, something, mm. something tricky from what? Mr. Jackal. So the Jackal at the very end of the section, which is where we actually end the chapter on, the Jackal grins toothly and he knows he's made the deal with the devil, he being Darrow. Yeah, I think to, to give that a little bit more context, um, just bleeding those together, like um, Leto getting his head chopped off. Um, I glimpsed the jackal tucking the silver stylus into his sleeve, the one that he spun on his fingers as he proposed our secret alliance. We lock eyes, he grins toothily, and I know I've made a deal with the devil. So like he he somehow paralyzed Leto with that stylus from afar and got him decapitated. Totally. So good. Yeah, it's it's shocking how good that bit is. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we move into your predictions for next week. We've got five predictions in five minutes. Ready, set, go. How do you think <laughs> the Suns will react to Darrow's choice not to bomb the gala? Uh, poorly. Poorly, first of all. But I think I think there's going to be some redemption, um, being that he's going to fall back in favor. 
probably with the Augustuses or with Nero specifically, and therefore he'll be in a better position to continue his mission. So, okay. but I, I don't think they'll be happy because yeah, immediately their reaction is going to be negative. But I think they'll I think they'll see with a little bit of charm from Darrow, they'll see his uh, his point. So at the very end of the section, uh, Nero and a Agu- and sorry Darrow. Uh, chase out and they're like looking at each other like they're, they're like locking eyes and very excited like going into this they they understand each other to some degree um, Mars very clearly they've agreed on now has a small civil war on its hands we're talking about an entire fucking planet of course um, between the Augustans and the Bolognas where does that go do you think I think where does it go for who like it just in general where does the civil where does war it go? go yeah yeah where does the civil war go what's what's the like end result slash like the cascading effect of the civil war over time. I think in the, in the short term, Darrow gets reinstated as a Lancer, both for the act of honoring the house and, and also proving himself as a capable and um, well-trained fighter, as well as being, I don't know, within favor of the, re- like probably being desired by the rest of the, like high-ranking houses, probably mm-hmm. makes Nero want him more. So I, I think in in the short term, he's going to maintain his lancership or regain his lancership. I don't remember if he's still a lancer right now. No, 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 he lost. Whatever, whatever. He, he did, but his contract wasn't sold yet. So like he's still under yeah. ownership, if that makes sense. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he'll. It's all slavery in the end. Yeah. But, well, I mean, yeah corporate slavery versus like modern slavery, whatever. And I think um, this isn't like a guess for the next section, like I know we do, but ultimately, as sort of an overarching guess, faction split, the Sovereign allies herself with the Bolognas, and Nero probably, um, I don't know, becomes the president of the Confederacy. (laughs) Confederacy, the separatist movement. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's little Star Wars at this point. Um, interesting. Okay, so you're saying he's going to start like a counter government. So uh, that also feeds into the next question, which I think you can answer simply based on that. Augustus wants to be king. Do you think he should allowed to be king? Augustus, do you think he Augustus, should allowed to be king? Is exactly what you said. Do you think he should be allowed to be? King? Should should be allowed to be? The, do I think he yeah. should be, or do you think I like? Do you think he would be allowed to be king? Not under the sovereign. sovereign. But I, I, but, but if they break into like a separate government, I think he can do whatever the fuck he wants because he'll be the leader of it as the highest yeah. ranking. Do you think that's likely head of to household? happen? Do you think that's likely to happen? I, I guess is maybe more. I think no. Okay. Not, not without some kind of trickery. I think Darrow will push for him to feel like that. In order to gain favor, but I, I think I think Daryl will kind of be sort of a tempering force within that sort of movement. Mustang question. Mustang, <laughs> is she going to side with her family or with the society slash Octavia as it stands? You know, I feel like her action is kind of in conflict between the two. Like she's she's kind of like she has family obligations clearly but also like her intervening in the middle of the duel 
wasn't so much a family obligation, it felt like, as it was a societal obligation. I think that she's working for who she considers to be her family. And I think Darrow is included in that. Okay. Just from sappy perspective, I think, uh, not that I'm a sappy person in general, but thinking about how I think this will play out, I think Mustang is, as she said, she, she has never stopped working for her family and like doing things to benefit her family. And I think, uh, I think Darrow's included in that. I think Darrow's probably the primary person that she's thinking of in that. So I, I don't think that she really cares that much about the society as a whole. It doesn't strike me as something that she's held onto as a main like focus, but Darrow is. Totally. So yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. Okay. Final question, um, which is in the earlier chapters, the Jackal lays out this plan to buy out Darrow out of his contract to make him his vassal of the house, Augustus, but through the Jackal. His partner in this whole operation is a silent partner who has the money to buy out that contract, no matter who else is deciding to buy it. Who do you think his mysterious backer is that can help buy out Darrow's contract? I think it's Mustang. We know it's not Victra. Yeah, we know it's not Victra. That would have been my first guess because she likes the Julia House. She does. Also, the Julia House is very wealthy, and Victra wants to fuck Darrow like nothing fucking else. Yep, that's true. Uh, But I think it's Mustang, and okay, I think she's probably been like siphoning money out of the out of the Bolognas. She probably has some money saved up herself. I, I think she's. I think she's doing well, and she's doing well because of her connection to Cassius. And like this is all planned and all schemed. So Mustang, faux show. Faux show. All right, I'm in. All right. Any other miscellaneous thoughts that you have? Oh, Any other predictions? Anything I'm, else? Well, I mean, just let me thank you for... Uh, <laughs> Allowing us to read this extra chapter beyond the page break or the, the break. <laughs> I know, right? Like was, <laughs> so all told, like it, it was, was such a good a release. Void. It was it such been a, a blank void. It would have been boring. Yeah, right. Like, I don't think we would have had that much to talk about. I mean, we we had it's, a lot of it. It was a lot of exposition and a lot of just kind of build. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. But I hope that you have enjoyed us enough to do one or more of the things that could really help us continue this venture. Number one would be simple word of mouth recommendations. If you have one friend or family member or anyone that you can think of that would really resonate with us and our kind of bullshit, uh, show <laughs> us to them. Yeah, and, and that above everything else will help us grow the most. Additionally, reviews and ratings on iTunes, iHeartRadio, anything else, subscribing, following on Spotify is a big deal. Showing it, showing up and commenting on Twitter like makes my heart pump valiantly. Uh, it makes me very excited about this. Continues us to like go down those recommended feeds and continues to make other people show up and check us out. Yeah, uh, as as he just said, the Twitter and Instagram like interactions are something that both show up on both of our phones throughout the day, and uh, we're always texting back and forth. Like, did you see this? Somebody's yeah, commenting, we, we and we don't out. know them. Like, we, we freak do. out. It's it's a lot of fun, and uh, we we appreciate each and every one of you. 
So thank you for listening and I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Thursday. Thank you.